This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener, when you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days. Go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, infinity and money. Infinite money? But first up, here's the news. Mending a broken heart with regeneration. Everyone knows that your heart is likely to be broken as a teenager, Soon we may be able to help it heal itself. It turns out that heart cells in mammals don't stop replicating after birth as it says in the textbooks, but keep the ability to replicate to repair the heart until adolescence. A team led by Professor Bob Graham from the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute discovered massive growth in heart cells in preteen mice, the equivalent of a human about 10 years old. A growth of 40% happen in just 24 hours in the mice, the equivalent of about five weeks in humans. This short window of growth may be why previous researchers over the last hundred years had missed the observation. The growth spurt is triggered by a surge in thyroid hormones. This type of growth in heart cells is necessary for the rapid growth in physical size as the child grows closer to adolescence. But it also allows the heart to recover quickly from injury. This suggests that the thyroid hormone treatment may help adults replicate their heart cells to heal from heart disease, and that children may respond better to surgery for heart defects than expected. Thyroid therapy is already given to children undergoing heart surgery because they often have unusually low levels of thyroid hormones after surgery and suffer dangerous inflammation as a result. Because the safety of thyroid therapy has already been established this way, Human trials of thyroid therapy for heart disease are likely to be approved more quickly. The study was published in the journal Cell as a proliferative burst during pre-adolescence establishes the final cardiomyocyte number. New letters in the DNA alphabet. Life is encoded in four letters, G, T, C and A. The nucleotides, guanine, thymine, cytosine and adenine which match up into two base pairs, AT and GC, in the DNA double helix. The base pairs make genes, which in turn are templates for making proteins. Researchers led by Floyd Romsberg at the Scripps Institute at La Jolla, California, have created two new letters X and Y, which pair up to make XY in DNA. Don't get them confused with the X and Y chromosomes. These are nucleotides. The team took some E. coli, a bacteria found in soil and humans, and inserted a loop of DNA from algae. This allowed the bacteria to take in new base pairs from the growth medium, 
The modified bacteria faithfully copy the XY base pairs and pass them on to their daughter cells. And the daughters pass the new DNA onto their daughters. For now, the new letters don't code for any proteins. They're just there as proof of purpose. The potential applications are enormous. Biological circuits that don't interfere with normal functions, the manufacture of proteins that have never existed before, and a whole new range of protein-based drugs. The team tried 300 different variations on X and Y before finding nucleotides that would be stable and replicate as easily as the natural genetic alphabet. The genetically modified bacteria come with a safety mechanism to stop them escaping the lab. Making the new nucleotides requires chemicals the bacteria can't find in the wild. Without the chemicals, the bugs stop making X and Y, and the modifications fade away. This means they could be used to create live vaccines that provoke a protective immune response in the body, but which can't replicate in your bloodstream. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the community radio network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Dorkbot is a collective of technological artists. Marcus Shappy is CEO of Geek Ammo and Little Bird Electronics. Geek Ammo is building the Internet of Things for the rest of us, allowing anyone to build Internet of Things systems. Marcus has a Master's of Design Science from Sydney University and studied mechatronics and business at the University of Technology, Sydney. He recently ran a Kickstarter project on the MicroView, an Arduino microcontroller chip with a built-in colour display so you can see the code as it's running. An OLED is an organic LED screen, which is sort of like a plastic LED. His crowdfunding project asked for $25,000 and raised $573,000. This is a very brief interview after his 30-minute talk at Dorkbot Sydney. You can hear other Dorkbot attendees chatting in the background. I began by asking Marcus, what is Arduino? An Arduino is an open-source microcontroller used by artists, designers and hobbyists. Uh, It's very popular in the hobbyist community. People use it from everything from wearable computing to interactive artworks. And Little Bird are the distributors in Australia. Uh, We are one of the many distributors in Australia. First distributor in Australia of Arduino. And you're looking at an Arduino compatible with an OLED screen. Yeah, we're trying to build the world's easiest to use uh, Arduino. And uh, we believe the microview is just that. What we have done is we've taken an Arduino Pro Mini, which is a type of an Arduino, and we've put an OLED display on top. And now you can actually see what your Arduino is thinking. And what sort of uses do you imagine people might put to this sort of thing? Because obviously it's a lot harder to program something when you can't see what's going on. Yep. So we've already seen people use it for wearable computing, but we've got ideas about how people could use it for just simple status monitors, brains of robots. Pretty much anything that you can do with an Arduino, you can do with the microview because it is an Arduino, 100% Arduino compatible. What it really does is it just makes it so much easier to learn Arduino because it comes with built-in tutorials. You can see what you're doing and uh, we think it's going to be really popular. So you're building a device that teaches people how to use it? Uh, well, the MicroView itself is the first Arduino that can teach you how to use itself. So because it 
has an OLED display built in. It actually comes pre-flashed with a fairly simple tutorials uh, that show you, you know, how to connect an LED from one pin and the cathode to the other pin, how to plug in an, a, uh, a light-dependent resistor from one pin to another pin. Uh, so it actually comes pre-flashed with tutorials, and that's a first. And if people want to look for your projects online, where do they look? Uh, microview.io. That's uh, micro, like Microsoft View, as in to view something, and .io, as in input-output. Well, Marcus, thank you very much. Yeah, no worries, mate. That was Marcus Shappy at Dorkbot, talking about the Arduino microcontroller with a little screen, the Microview. You can find out more about the Microview with its built-in tutorials at microview.io. And now for a really big topic, infinity. Infinity never ends. It just keeps on going. Infinity is more of a concept than a number. Infinity plus one is still infinity. Infinity minus anything is still infinity. Infinity multiplied or divided by anything is still infinity. Infinity is a big concept to get your head around, so here's some scenarios to help your imagination. Zeno was an ancient Greek philosopher, whose paradoxes are preserved in Aristotle's physics. First, there's Achilles and the tortoise. In a race, the quickest runner can never overtake the slowest, since the pursuer must first reach the point whence the pursued started, so that the slower must always hold a lead. Imagine the hero Achilles is in a foot race with a tortoise. He gives the tortoise a head start of 100 metres. In the time it takes Achilles to run 100 metres to the tortoise's starting place, the tortoise has moved 10 metres, so it's still ahead. While Achilles travels the next 10 metres, the tortoise moves 1 metre. This keeps the tortoise always ahead because Achilles has to travel to the space the tortoise has last visited before he can pass the tortoise. Because there are an infinite number of ever smaller amounts of space for Achilles to cover before passing the tortoise, he never gets to pass the tortoise. If you can divide space infinitely, then you get a paradox. In modern terms, that would imply that space was quantized as the Planck length, the smallest possible length. The Planck length is 10 to the minus 37 meters, the pixels of the universe. While you're absorbing that, here's Zeno's arrow paradox. If everything, when it occupies an equal space, is at rest, and if that which is in locomotion is always occupying such a space at any moment, the flying arrow is therefore motionless. He's saying that for motion to happen, something at rest must change its position. However, at any freeze-frame instant of time, the arrow is sitting in just one place. If time is made up of instants, then there must be an infinite number of them, and the arrow must be still in each of them. You never catch the instant in which the arrow moves, so it can never be in continuous movement. If you divide time infinitely, you get a paradox. In modern terms, that would imply that time was quantized as Planck time. Planck time is 5 times 10 to the minus 44 seconds, the time for light in a vacuum to move one Planck length, as short a time as you can get. Motion only becomes possible if the arrow disappears from one place and reappears in the next, like a film strip divided into Planck time frames. The inability to know both the location and the speed at the same time is also reminiscent of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Can you ever finish an infinite number of steps, even if they're infinitely small, 
and take an infinitely small amount of time each. Let's take a trip to German mathematician David Hilbert's paradox of the Grand Hotel. Hilbert's hotel has an infinite number of rooms, but it's full. Every room is numbered, and the guests have all signed an agreement to listen to the loudspeaker in their room and follow instructions when required. There's a person for every room, an infinite number of guests. Now you need a place to stay. How can you find a place to rest your head? What do you do? You ask the manager to create a vacancy by asking every guest to move up a room number to the room with the number they had plus one. The guest from room one moves to room two. The guest from room two moves to room three and so on forever. This frees up room one and you can take the room. Of course, in the process, you've annoyed an infinite amount of your fellow hotel guests. Then a bus with an infinite number of passengers arrives and they all want a room. The manager has demonstrated he doesn't care about annoying his guests. So he asks everybody to move to the room number that's doubled their own room number. The person in room one goes to room two. The guest in room two goes to room four. The guest in room three goes to room six and so on forever. This frees up all of the odd number of rooms, of which there are an infinite number. So the infinite number of new guests from the bus can just move right in. And from an infinite amount of stuff to a very limited amount of stuff. It's Federal Budget Week in Australia, which means it's time to talk again about money. Joffrey Bauche is an economist working as Assistant Secretary of the Association for Good Government in Sydney. The interview was recorded at the City of Sydney RSL. You can hear some of the other diners in the background. This is part three of a series of talks about money, science or alchemy. When we're talking about money as capital, we assume that the natural relationship of capital to the economy is capital is what is produced by labor in the first place. So you, you, as if going back to the example of, a, of an island when you're marooned, your capital is a spear you produce in order to hunt the nets in order to fish, the house you build in order to have shelter. And it can be monetized if, let's say, you fish more than what you need and you trade it for a net of, say, your neighbor, produced by the neighboring village, so you can fish some more, a larger cash. And if you trade the fruits you gather to get the net in order to fish, then both the neighboring village and you are better off because they've got fruits that they don't have to pick. They've given you a net, which is more than what they needed, and you are able to get fish, to be able to feed yourself with more protein. And that would be the natural relationship of, of an exchange. It becomes a bit imbalanced. I, would, I was going to say unnatural, but imbalanced when you say that I am able to generate money without any corresponding goods and services that were produced. When that happens, it's generally because you're able to speculate on a values, higher monetary value, appreciate or its appreciation over time. 
you let's say you bought a painting for instance for ten thousand dollars and then the artist dies it, be, it be, suddenly becomes it, it's worth fifty thousand there's sheer perception with regard to that but the money that you can generate from selling the painting can actually buy forty thousand dollars more worth of goods than the original ten thousand dollars that you paid for it so there's some real values involved in gains in speculation now there's another aspect also of uh, the velocity of money that i have men mentioned which happens in reserve currency let's say you deposit ten thousand dollars in a bank now the bank can turn around and lend say nine thousand dollars to a bar to a, a client but then when you when he when that bank lends to the client nine thousand dollars he can tell that client to deposit the nine thousand dollars you lent to him back into the bank so the bank can actually register nineteen thousand dollars in deposits and then he can again turn around and look for another client and lend 90% of that 19,000 and tell that client I'll lend it to you but please deposit the 90% the 90 of 19,000 back into my bank so you've got 19,000 plus 10% of that 19,000 coming from an, an original $10,000 deposit so with fractional reserve money you're actually multiplying the money that is deposited in you in the first place so it would look like money out of thin air but you're actually lending him money in order to produce goods and services that the economy needs now the problem happens is if i lend money on the expectation of the person buying real estate will buy real estate that will increase in value over time and he can use that increased value of real estate over time to pay back the loan but what if it doesn't appreciate in value what if you've already exhausted the pool of buyers of real estate in the first place how will the bank be repaid for the loan and if he can't be repaid for the loan how will he be able to service the depositors of his bank because hey I'm sorry the person who I lent to isn't paying me back so that's where the problem begins where did the values of the money that was lent to a person came from? Was it from an actual production of goods and services or was it from the sure expectations that the value of what he bought, what he speculated on, would actually grow and he could liquidate it and convert it to cash in order to pay for his loan? But in the Australian system, which, which I know better, my understanding is that you have to pay back a loan regardless, and if you don't, you forfeit whatever you put up for security, which is probably the property that you... Whatever you put up for security that's worth at least as much as you borrowed, and you have to pay the loan back as well, otherwise you go to jail. Yes, that is a better system because the borrower will have to think of a way to produce the value to pay back the loan, whereas in the US, all the person has to do is just, all right, I'll surrender the keys of my house and we can just simply part ways. The, the other negative effect of that is you will have heaps of unoccupied real estate. So let me get this clear. So you're saying, while in Australia you have to give security before you can get a loan and the security has to be worth something to the person that you're borrowing the money from, 
in addition to that, you also have to pay the money back at the end. Whereas you're saying in America, you don't have to have security and you don't have to pay back the loan if you can't. You just have to give back the asset that you bought. So all those people who bought a mortgage for a house, they just lose the house and what they've paid the bank so far, but they don't owe them the balance. Whereas in Australia, you would owe them the balance. And in Australia, you're the, the, what you paid for will be taken into consideration of the original loan. So you're actually better off in Australia in, a, in two ways that what you paid will be taken into consideration. And second, the borrower is forced to seek means in which to pay it back, which means he has to work. I'm still trying to see the science in, in, in all of this. I mean, economics has been called the dismal science. Why do you think that is? Well, part of it is because of... Uh, of uh, Thomas Malthus' dismal view that population grows geometrically while food production grows arithmetically, which is actually a mathematical fallacy. <laughs> it hasn't happened his- historically. So they would, that, that's how they viewed economics as being a dismal science, that uh, you're dealing with scarcity. You're dealing with the inevitable exhaustion of limited resources of the planet. But there is also, I would say, there's so economics can be looked at in terms of a science and method of hope. One is because in cooperation you can actually produce more than the sum of individual separate efforts. And that synergy can actually be helped to further society into what we call a civilization. Unfortunately, that's not... The, that, that's, where the, that's where the struggle in economics really is. Is it the science of hope that can produce uh, synergy? Or is it uh, this small science where we face the inevitable exhaustion of uh, limited resources on the planet instead of looking at the potential of human beings to generate further values where we once didn't see any? And so what about the connection between scientific research and the economy. In economies where scientific research is being cut, uh, what's that going to do to the economy? I would say that's, that's terrible because science, the frontiers of science, science generates value. Science generates knowledge. Knowledge always has value which can be monetized and be used by the, the community. Unless, of course, it is the value is monetized and sequestered by a monopoly and made to serve only that monopoly. And you know what happens, what, how mono- monopolies operate. They will char- monopolies operate by charging you the maximum price for the amount of goods that they will produce at the minimum amount because no one else produces it anyway. So it would be very foolhardy to simply cut science research just to save money because you are actually killing the goose that laid the golden eggs in the first place. It's a brave new world out there with regard to uh, currency because uh, people normally think that the only option is government should produce all the money, private banks should produce all the money, which some neoliberals think. Some people think it should be a hybrid. And I've talked about nature being an alternative, which actually reveals the the money as a social commons. As a social commons, money has also been been used to, when it's properly managed, to battle poverty. Uh, Let me go to a simple case in uh, Germany during the Weimar Republic where there was hyperinflation. 
the Raiffeisen Cooperative Movement saw the problem as saw this problem that of uh, its workers, upon receiving their payroll at the start of the day, cannot afford the same amount of goods at the end of the day. And farmers also, after selling their produce for cash, and one day, can no longer afford to even buy the seeds for the following crop cycle. So what they did was they, made, they designed a trading company for the farmers and the workers to produce together. The trading company would actually issue coupons so that workers are assured of the right amount of what they need. Bread, milk, food, clothing that the farmers provide. And the farmers also have coupons that assure them of the right amount of seeds, implements, for their next crop cycle. Now, those coupons are practically money. And so the proper management of money can actually combat poverty and hardship. So we should really should explore the avenues of what you'd call a universal basic income for one, for some, or a citizen's dividend. On the other hand, where a citizen's dividend is a treatment of the synergy created by society to be distributed among its citizens to ensure them of the right to a dignified human existence in their community. So I'd like to end the interview with a light of hope, not of despair, which we are now facing whenever we think of the global financial crisis as caused by the problem of money. Jeffrey Balche, thank you very much. Thank you very much. My pleasure. That was economist Joffrey Bauche talking about the nature of money. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2 H in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and please review Diffusion. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And remember to check the website for more information about this week's show. You support Diffusion by downloading a free book from Audible. Audible will sponsor Diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads the free book of their choice from audibletrial.com science. Or look for the donate button on www.diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon.
And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar.